0: On Blood on Gold Mountain. After a romantic night to themselves, Yut Ho and Lee Young dreamed of running away and starting a new life together. They devised a proposal for Yo Hing that he couldn't refuse to kidnap Yut Ho. When Yut Ho disappeared, Sam Yuan would look a fool. Yo Hing agreed and made arrangements to smuggle the young couple out of Los Angeles. To make it official, Yohing arranged a guayla marriage between Yut ho and Li Yong, which would invalidate Yut hos Chinese marriage to Hing-Sing in the eyes of the law. Yohing warned them to be prepared to leave in two days' time.
1: The kidnapping couldn't possibly have gone more smoothly. At seven o'clock sharp on the appointed morning, the carriage rolled up beneath Yutho's window. Its shiny black roof caught the morning sun and reflected it back towards the heavens, like the sky of some inverted world. Yutho and Liang were ready. They slipped downstairs quietly, each carrying a single bag, which contained everything they would need on their journey. Yohing's men were waiting for them in the corridor strong, silent types with close-cropped hair. They stood one at each end of the passage, only moving once the young travelers had reached the front door. If Hing Seng or any of the girls noticed anything unusual, they opted not to come out and investigate. It was a wise decision. One of Yo Hing's men carried a hatchet, the other a pair of long, wicked-looking knives. The carriage was pulled up so that its open door communicated directly with the brothel's entrance. Yut Ho could hear the muffled sounds of morning traffic out in the alley, but no one saw them as Xi, Li Yong, and Yo Hing's men clambered into the carriage and quietly closed the door. Then they were off, clattering northwards towards the dusty plaza that marked the end of Calle de los Negros and of Chinatown. Yutho heard La Iglesia de Nuestra Señora la Reina de Los Ángeles before she saw it. At first, it was only a low throbbing. As they drew closer, the sound grew louder and brighter until the carriage was filled with a clamor like a thousand spirits banging on gongs and clattering bells to summon her to the other world. Finally, Yutho could no longer contain her curiosity. She opened the shutter, just a crack, and peered out. The sound was issuing from an enormous bell, which swung from the rafters of a round pagoda with a peaked roof and no walls. It took Yat-Ho a few seconds to make sense of what she was seeing, because the pagoda was not located on the ground, like a normal structure. Instead, it was perched on the roof Of the largest building she had ever seen. The sun shone full upon the church's vast whitewashed facade. Halfway up the wall, two dark windows seemed to stare out over the plaza. Below them, the arch of the doorway was so broad and high that three men could have passed through it on horseback. As the carriage drew near, Yatho saw that there were indeed three men standing on the packed dirt in front of the door. The first one was short and stocky, with gray hair and a kindly face. He was dressed in a shapeless dark garment, and around his neck hung a large wooden amulet shaped like the Chinese number no. 10. Yatho had noticed the same design perched atop the highest point on the church's roof she wondered if this man lived in the building. The second man was a tall, thin guailaw, who looked like he hadn't gotten enough sleep for a very long time. He was holding a leather carrying case, out of which the edges of several documents protruded. The third man was Yo Hing. The men moved aside as the carriage pulled up and its occupants climbed out, at a word from Yohing, the churchman turned and pushed against the huge oaken door, which gave way with a deep groan. The guards from the carriage stationed themselves on either side of the entrance, and Hing gestured towards the church's interior, which exhaled a cool draught from out of its unseen depths. Yutho and Leon glanced at each other. Then they hefted their bags, and stepped forward into the gloom. The door slammed shut behind them with a resonant boom. It took Yat-Ho's eyes a little while to adjust, but when they did, she found herself in a long cavernous hall with whitewashed walls and floor of large square tiles the color of red clay. The whole place was filled with row upon row of long wooden benches except for a narrow aisle which ran down the building's center. The churchman was standing on a raised platform at the far end of this aisle, and Yatho caught her breath. Above him, illuminated by a pair of tall, recessed windows on either hand, was the figure of a man. He had been nailed to a kind of gallows which, like the churchman's amulet, was carved in the shape of an enormous cross. The hanged man's chest was located at the intersection of the two gigantic beams, with his hands nailed to the horizontal and his feet to the vertical piece of wood. Blood streamed from a gaping wound in his side and his head hung down in an attitude of infinite pain and weariness. Behind him and all around, Faded gold paint gleamed dully in the semi-darkness. yo voice startled Yat-ho out of her horrified trance. Gwaila weddings are conducted in the sight of their law and in the sight of their god. See where he hangs on the wall. The space did strange things with sound so that Yohing's rumbling bass seemed to come from all directions at once. You must go to him, and then Father Sanchez will ask each of you whether it is your wish to be married, with God, myself, and Henry as witnesses. yat glanced at the Gwaila man, who was standing behind Yohing and shuffling through papers in his case. Then she looked back to the hanged god, and the smiling churchman at his feet. Vain, he said in a voice so kind and gentle that it seemed out of place in this hall of blood and shadows. Vain aquí, niños. He beckoned. Slowly, Yutho and Leon began to walk down the aisle. The sound of their footsteps filled the room with echoes, so that it seemed like they were being followed by a wedding party of ghosts. When they stepped up onto the low platform, the churchman began to speak. Yutho tried not to look up, but it was difficult. The hanged God's agonized face was turned towards them, and she could feel his eyes upon her, searching, judging. She felt her Gungung's Bagua hanging down between her breasts, and in her heart, she formed a wordless prayer beseeching the gods and the ancestors for guidance and protection. She could now see that the church was built on a vaguely cruciform floor plan with two alcoves branching out to either side of the main hall. One of those alcoves was before her now and way back in its shadowy depths, she suddenly glimpsed a sight that made her heart leap. A woman surrounded by flowers And bathed in golden light. Upon her head, she wore a crown of stars, and her feet rested in the hollow of the crescent moon. Her face was the image of serenity itself, gently downturned towards her praying hands. The flowers that bloomed all around her were strange, as was the cut of her robe. But Yutho knew her at once. She would have known her anywhere. Wan Ying, goddess of mercy, and the most beloved deity in China. Yat Ho felt her heart grow warm, and she stood up straighter. Then the churchman stopped speaking. He looked expectantly at Li Yong. See, si, said Li Yong. He smiled at Yat Ho. The churchman spoke again for a short while, then turned to Yut Ho with the same expectant look. Yut Ho and Liang had rehearsed this moment, but she still felt a little bit foolish attempting to speak in the Guala tongue. See, si, she said, smiling uncertainly. The churchman raised his arms, said one more thing in his resonant, round-edged language, and beamed. Suddenly, Yo-Hing was beside them. "'Good work, you two,' he rumbled. "'I hate to rush you in your moment of nuptial bliss, "'but we should get you out of here before somebody notices "'that a gang of axe-wielding heathens has taken over their church. "'Leong, this is for you.' "'He handed Leong a paper covered in scribbly guayla writing. "'While you're at the safe house, keep it on your person at all times, understand?' Even if you lose everything else, it is vitally important that you hang on to that paper. Without it, the Guayla will be able to take Yutho away from you. Henry has another copy, which I'll hold on to in case of emergencies, but I might not be able to reach you when you need it. Keep your copy safe and don't let anyone take it away from you. What about me? asked Yutho. Do I get a paper? sorry, Yut Ho. Hing was already ushering them back down the aisle and towards the door. I'm afraid no document in Gold Mountain has enough force in it to make a Gwaila man listen to a Chinese woman. Moments later, the newlyweds were seated once more in the back of their unmarked carriage. Through the crack in the shutters, Yutho Ho watched Yo Hing and his two associates receding as she and Liang rattled across the plaza away from the church and towards what? She did not know. The safe house turned out to be a little bungalow of wood and adobe, which huddled unassumingly on Chinatown's southern edge. Once again, the carriage pulled right up to the door, blocking the view from the street as Yut Ho and Leong slipped inside. As the carriage rumbled off, the two of them found themselves in a small but comfortable sitting room of traditional Chinese design, standing face-to-face with a smiling, middle-aged couple. To Yat-Ho's surprise, she realized that she recognized their host. Dr. Tong, she said, inclining her head respectfully, we haven't met. But I was at the Zup Company banquet when you confronted Sam Yuan. Thank you for taking us under your roof in our time of need." Dr. Tong smiled. From what I've heard, I wasn't the only one who had a run-in with Sam Yuan that night. You've been through a terrible ordeal here in Chinatown and through no fault of your own. Now, though, I hope the worst of it is over and I'm very happy that you and Li Yong will be staying with us for a while. Congratulations on your wedding, by the way. A well-worn network of laugh lines appeared around his twinkling eyes. They look well together. Don't you think so, Tong His wife nodded. She was dressed in a loose, floor-length Chang Yi of embroidered silk. Her skin was of a lustrous red-brown color and she had big dark eyes which were strikingly offset by streaks of gray in the locks that hung down on either side of her face looking at her yutho felt a sudden tightness in her chest if her mother were still alive she would have been about tongyo's age i remember when we were that young said tongyo though she was speaking to her husband her eyes were fixed on yutho We were so restless and hungry for the glamorous things in life. She laughed. Those were different times before the wars, when everything seemed so stable. These two have already faced so much hardship, and yet... The hint of a smile played around the corners of her lips. Look at them, as fresh and innocent as we ever dared to be. Dr. Tong laughed. Sometimes I wonder whether all this hardship is more tonifying for the spirit than the decadent ways of our youth. I'll have to check their vitals, but I have a feeling that shun runs especially strong in these two. First, though, let's eat. These young people must be hungry, what with escaping from Yuan and getting married all before breakfast. He led them into another room. Where a plain wooden table was laden with bowls of juk and platters of dumplings, Yut Ho and Liang thanked the Tongs profusely. Then they descended upon the meal with the ferocity of ravenous tigers. In the days that followed, Yut Ho and Liang did their best to integrate themselves into the Tongs' daily routines. Liang immediately took over the bulk of the cooking and cleaning, which kept him busy while Dr. Tong was away at his office. Yat Ho soon realized that the best thing she could do was simply keep Tong Yo company. Like all of Gold Mountain, Chinatown was mostly a society of men. For Yat Ho, whose closest friend growing up had been her brother, this wasn't much of an issue. But Tong Yo was different. Her whole aspect was one of traditional, refined femininity, which would have been unusual most places in China, let alone in this dusty outpost among the barbarians. Yat Ho was enchanted and slightly intimidated by the older woman's poise and graceful manners. Even so, she was unable to stop herself from staring one afternoon when Tong shifted her robe to reveal a tiny, Intricately embroidered shoe fashioned in the shape of a lotus petal. Are you all right? Tanyo asked. Yutho was mortified. Yes, I'm terribly sorry. It's just that I've never. Um... Her voice faltered and she felt her face begin to burn. Tanyo laughed. She was holding a fan in one hand and it swayed gently in the heat. Never seen someone with bound feet before? Yut Ho shook her head mutely. Tongyo laughed again. She looked terribly glamorous, like a figure out of some priceless painting in an imperial palace. Don't be embarrassed, my dear child. I told you that Jin and I led a decadent life when we were young, didn't I? We weren't exactly libertines. In fact, I'd say we were quite conventional by the standards of the day, but those were decadent times. Before the Guayla Wars, China was more than just a country. It was the cradle of civilization. The center of the world. More than that, we knew we were on the cusp of modernization and it felt like the entire world was at our feet. No pun intended. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Nobody knew what horrors were in our future, and it seemed like the whole world was buzzing with anticipation. The emperor and his Manchu government were almost universally hated, and their hold over society was slipping. The Manchus see footbinding as a threat to their way of life. They want to force us to give it up, the way they forced our men to wear their hair in those ridiculous braids. If the authorities had found out about my feet, my father would have been punished. She looked down for a moment, and her long lashes fell like curtains over her eyes. Making our traditions illegal wasn't going to stop us. To the contrary, it made them a point of pride. People used to joke that Baihui men lost their dignity when the Manchu forced them to braid their hair. But Baihui women are more stubborn. Yut mind was reeling. She had no love for oppressive Manchu policies. However, her mother's family had been staunchly opposed to foot binding. Yut was connected to the powerful Kuja tribe, and Kuja women never bound their feet. They were openly contemptuous of the practice. It had never occurred to Yut that some women might be proud of their bound feet. Tang Yo sighed. I know it probably seems silly to you. Ever since war broke out, everything has become about survival. But in the old days, it was different. You can't imagine the glamour, the social games, the pure sensuality that pervaded every aspect of life back then. For me, it was very simple. I was a dark skinned girl from a merchant family. But I was beautiful and clever, and I wanted a taste of high society. Binding my feet gave me a competitive edge. It was the ultimate fashion statement for women. Walk into a room dressed in your finest silks and your lotus shoes, and heads would turn. It wasn't purely aesthetic, either. Not every girl who picks up a bandage will be able to fit into my shoes. It's a hard, grueling, painful process that takes years, and some people do it better than others. Women knew I was harder, stronger than those with inferior bindings. Men, too, knew well enough that most of them couldn't do it either. They respected me, all the way down to that deep, dark corner of the male psyche, which worships violence, discipline, Armed with my lotus shoes, my father's money and my wits, I worked my way up to the most exclusive circles in Guangzhou. It was a scene of clever scholars, famous artists and poets, glamorous matriarchs, powerful warriors and of course, lots and lots of pretty girls. You had to stay sharp, keep up with whatever new or ancient things were in style from shoes to poetry and politics. I had to be diligent about keeping out of the sun so I wouldn't turn black like my father. A sunburned face might do for a warrior, but I was looking to marry well. I didn't want to be taken for a working girl, begging your pardon. It was in those fashionable circles that I met Jean, a talented young doctor from a good family Terribly handsome and very active in local politics. One look at me, and he was under my spell. My father couldn't believe it when he came to ask for my hand in marriage. But my mother, she understood. Jean was always very idealistic, and that got us into trouble after we were married. When war broke out, the government cracked down on political actors in the South, and we had to flee to this place where the sun is always shining and where swaggering whores and cotton trousers laugh at my lotus feet when I go to market. li bustled in, carrying a tray of cups with cold chrysanthemum and goji berry tea. He smiled and handed one to each of the sitting women, giving Yat-ho's shoulder a little squeeze as he headed back to the kitchen. My goodness, said Tong-yo, fanning herself and taking a delicate sip of tea. yat had to resist the urge to gulp hers down all at once. It was so good. Cool and soothing, it caressed the palate with a faintly bitter start that resolved into a soft, sweet finish. I don't want to give the wrong impression. I'm actually very happy here. Jin and I live a quiet life, well-suited to our advancing age. We still read poetry together in the evenings and keep up with the latest news from China, depressing as that may be. And there are a few diamonds among these rough gold mountain men who make better company than some of those boorish warriors in the old social scene. Perhaps you've met Tong Wan. He's the second cousin of Jin's and a very fine Erhu player. And of course, there's dear Leong. How lucky we are now that we have you here as well. Tong flashed a dazzling smile. Then her expression grew dreamy. Still, there are times when I miss the excitement of the old days. Memories seem sweeter when you know that the things you're remembering are gone forever and you can never go back. Yut Ho thought of her village, her family, and all the hopes and dreams she had lost when her entire world was swept away by the war. Tongyo was right. In her heart, their image seemed to grow brighter and more beautiful with each passing day. After they finished their tea, Tongyo went to lie down a while. Liang was hard at work in the kitchen, filling the house with the clatter of pots and a marvelous, savory smell. Yutho swept the floor and did a bit of dusting, but the place was already very clean. She decided to go outside and have a cigarette. Yutho looked around as she stepped out into the alley behind the house. The air had grown uncharacteristically humid so that her skin felt sticky and it was hard to get her cigarette to light. Overhead, the sky was piled with layer upon layer of clouds whose edges caught the sunset hues of yellow and pink while their centers brooded in bruise-colored shadow. Silence lay thick and heavy over the world. yat fancied she could smell the sea, Away to the west where the sun was sinking in an orange haze. It's going to rain, thought Yatho. The rain has come at last. Just then a crack of thunder seemed to split the sky. The rain came pouring down like blood out of a mortal wound, and Yatho's vision went black. She coughed and attempted to cry out. But the world was filled with the smell of leather and suffocating smoke. Someone had her arms pinioned behind her back, and she kicked furiously into the darkness until she felt her heel connect with something that started off hard, then gave way with a satisfying crunch. There was a savage grunting noise. Then something slammed into the back of her head with such force that the stinking darkness was filled with a burst of rainbow-colored light, and Yat-Ho felt no more. Four tall maidens were dancing a ribbon dance. They formed and flickered in a shimmering void, casting their ribbons in a diagonal, diverging pattern that seemed to move without either changing or staying the same. There was a noise of drums in the background, or maybe it was horses' hooves galloping down a lonely road beneath a sky as cracked and jagged as a broken skull. A ah Choy was there, a condor, a vulture, circling over a field of corpses while the blood poured down from the heavens in pulses of increasing intensity. Boom. 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 Then the pain became too great to ignore. The shadows warped themselves into coherent shapes, and Yut Ho came too. She was lying on a moldy, stinking pallet and staring up at a ceiling of cracked adobe. There was a flickering yellow light in which several long bars cast strange, wavering shadows over her field of vision. She tried to sit up, but the pain seized her, and she uttered a stream of profanity so savage that it actually made her feel a little better. Fortified, she reached up gingerly to touch the back of her head And her hand came away sticky with a thin layer of half dried blood. A club, she said out loud. The bastards hit me with a club. She felt a surge of indignation and, gritting her teeth, hauled herself to her feet. She was in a small, windowless room, bisected by a row of iron bars, each as big around as a sturdy bamboo cane. A large padlock hung on a rusty chain near the center of the row, where several of the bars were mounted on a frame to form a sort of door between the room's two halves. The only furniture on Yutho's side was her thin cloth pallet. It was ragged and filthy, discolored by several vintages of bloodstains, besides the fresh one where her head had recently been. On the opposite side of the bars was a small desk complete with a stack of papers and a guttering oil lamp. The wall beside the desk was coated in peeling plaster that might once have been white or yellow. Now it was gray with a spattering of mildew as black as the iron fittings of the single closed door. Yutho Ho sighed. She had never seen a jail before, but there was little doubt as to where she was now. Her assailants must have been policemen, which explained the club. Back in Hing Sing's house, she had often seen them out her window as they prowled down Calle de los Negros, hefting the crude weapons as they searched for a likely place to score a bribe. Nothing happened for what felt like a very long time. Yat Ho eventually found a relatively clean patch of floor, lay down, and went to sleep. She was awakened by a clatter and a bang. Two enormous Gwala men had entered the room. One of them was fat, with great hairy jowls that made him look like a gigantic pig stuffed into a suit. The other was long and lanky, with thinning yellow hair and pale staring eyes. He leered at Yat-Ho as the first man pulled out an oversized keyring and began to open her cell. yat leapt to her feet. She positioned herself a few steps back from the entrance and felt around with her feet for traction. Her left foot found a slick spot and she moved slightly so that the fat gwila would have to step there in order to reach her. All right, Chasu Bao, she thought. Come and get me if you can, but watch your step. The yellow guala said something in a harsh nasal voice. Then a tall figure stepped through the outer door. Phoenix? Yarho's heart sank. Phoenix came forward and leaned against the bars. Ignoring the two whose eyes were now viciously raking over every contour of her long, slender body. A word to the wise, she said. It's generally a very bad idea for Chinamen or women to fight with the police. Just go along with it. And if you're lucky, you might not even get raped. Her tone was gloating. You are lucky, though. Today... Is your lucky day. Phoenix pushed herself away from the bars and walked over to the little desk, where she perched next to the flickering lamp. Her shadow reared up over the wall and onto the ceiling. They're not here to rape you. Not yet, at least. She smiled sweetly. For now, all they want to do is to take you down the hall to the courtroom. You're going to have a trial, and when that trial is over, the police will hand you over to Hing Sing, who will take you home, and hand you over to me and Jade. Then we'll tie you up and hand you over to Sam Yuen, who will beat you bloody and then put you to work in a brothel. Not our nice high-quality brothel, though. He'll put you to work in the Alameda Street Place, where you'll be raped by Gwala every day of your life, until you eventually catch syphilis and die. Yetho wondered if a sufficiently savage bite to the inside of Phoenix's skinny neck would be enough to kill her. Unfortunately, Phoenix continued, we have to go through this stupid trial because that idiot yo insists on making a fool of himself by trying to defend you. I don't know what kind of dirty tricks you pulled on him, but I guess they worked. Maybe you'll do okay in the brothel after all. Yutho kept on scowling, but she felt a surge of hope. Yo Hing was defending her in court. In her mind's eye, she saw the big man handing Leong that precious document in the shadow of the hanged god. What had he said? Without it, the Guaila will be able to take Yutho Ho away from you. What did that mean? The fat Gwaila looked from Yut Ho to Phoenix and back again. He was now holding a pair of rusty shackles which swung back and forth like a dead rabbit. Yut Ho stepped forward and offered up her wrists like a good, obedient prisoner. She thought of Li Yong sitting at the table in Hing Sing's house and trimming bean sprouts. Yo Hing is incredibly charismatic, he had said. Now she was about to find out just how much that charisma was worth in the halls of Gwaila justice. The magistrate was a rotund Gwaila in a white wig who was seated atop what looked like a huge upturned ox cart. His voice droned on and on as Yatho tried to make sense of her surroundings. Like the church, the courtroom was full of long, uncomfortable-looking benches, some of which were occupied by small groups of guailo. Near the foot of the magistrate's pedestal was an open space, at the edge of which were two tables positioned side by side. Behind the nearer of these tables sat Yo Hing, leaning back in his chair so completely at his ease that just looking at him gave Yat-Ho's confidence a boost. Behind the further table sat Hing-Sing and Sam Yuan, Hing Sing looked nervous, but he gave Yat Ho a little wave when she was brought in. Sam Yuan stared directly ahead, glancing sidewise at Yo from time to time with an expression that Yat Ho found funny and terrifying in equal measure. Yat Ho herself stood with her back to the wall, flanked on either side by the two Guaila policemen. There was a great deal of talking, most of it in La. First, Yo Hing stood up and spoke animatedly for a long time. Then Hing Sing rambled on for a while, pausing from time to time for murmured exchanges with Sam Yuan. Yat Ho stopped even pretending to pay attention. The room was growing increasingly hot. There was a fly buzzing around, tracing swift, looping patterns in the stagnant air. It landed on the magistrate's wig several times, but he didn't seem to notice. In fact, he didn't move at all. Yetho Ho looked at him sitting in his heavy black robe and wondered if he was still awake. The fly circled around the heads of a couple Gwaila scribes and then came to rest on the table in front of Hing Sing. Samyuan's hand came down like a bolt of lightning. It crushed the hapless creature with a resounding smack that made the magistrate jump. "'Give it up, Yo-Hing,' said Sam Yuan. "'He wiped his hand on the hem of Hing Sing's robe. "'Everybody knows it was me that brought the girl over from China "'and that she's married to Hing Sing. "'You are wasting all of our time.' "'Yo-Hing looked at him with an expression so patronizing "'that Yat-Ho thought Sam Yuan's head might explode. "'Call your witnesses, Sam.' There was a noisy exchange in Gwila, and then Phoenix appeared. She walked past the two tables, past where Yatha was standing, and right up to the magistrate's throne, at which point she turned aside and stepped into a waist high box shaped like an inverted tea crate. She turned to face the court. Sam stood up and addressed her in up, with Hing Sing translating for the Gwila in the room. Do you know the prisoner? He asked Phoenix. Sure, she replied, shooting Yutho a malevolent glance. How long have you known her? asked Samuel. Yutho wondered why he and Phoenix couldn't just tell the magistrate their version of events. The question and answer format made the whole thing seem like a bad piece of theater. Phoenix looked up towards the ceiling as though she was trying to remember. I've known her for a few months, I'd say. Ever since she married Hing Sing and moved into the, uh, house. Sam Yen sat down abruptly. That's all, he said. Phoenix looked around. When nobody gave her any sign of what to do, she extracted herself from the box and began to walk towards the back of the room. Yo Hing stood up. All right, Yohing, thought Yat Ho. Let's see what you've got." Yo Hing did not cross-examine Phoenix, nor did he speak to the magistrate. Instead, he addressed Sam Yuen in the Gulo language. For a moment, the two of them stared at each other in silence. Then Hing Sing leaned down to murmur a translation in Sam Yuen's ear. It was quiet, but Yat Ho was listening very carefully. Do you have any documentation of the defendant's alleged marriage to Hing Seng? I don't need any documentation, growled Sam Yuan. We both know the truth, and we both know you're a liar. Charming, said Yo Hing. He glanced up at the magistrate, who was toying with his wig. Your Honor, are you aware that the young lady who just left the stand is in the employ of Hing Sing and Sam Yuan at their well-known house of ill repute on Calle de los Negros. The magistrate looked up. His pale, protuberant eyes darted from Yeo Hing to Sam Yuan and then to Phoenix, who was sitting on one of the long benches. I did not know that, he said. I can assure you that it's true, said Yeo Hing just as I can assure you that Sam Yuan's account of the defendant's marriage is pure fiction. He devised it out of a cruel desire to deprive this innocent young woman of her happiness and abduct her for nefarious ends. Sam Yuan has not assimilated to your enlightened ways. He hasn't even learned your language. In him, the unprincipled oriental impulses run wild. This woman whom he seeks to abduct is married in the sight of God and the United States of America, but not to the pander Hing sing As a witness, I called to the stand her lawful wedded husband, Li Yong. Yat-ho looked around. A man who had been sitting quietly near the door stood up. He had a broad, felt hat that tilted down over his eyes, but as he came forward, he reached up and removed it. Sure enough, it was Li Yong. Like Yo Hing, he was dressed in the Guayla style, with a dark, open-fronted jacket, white shirt, and sailcloth trousers. His expression was serious, but he winked at Yat Ho as he passed. In his hand, he held a single sheet of paper. "'What is that document the witness is holding?' asked the magistrate. "'Why, your honor,' replied Yeohing. "'That's his marriage certificate. "'Let me see that.' The magistrate extended his hand imperiously, and Li handed the document up to him. The magistrate looked over it for a few seconds, then clicked his tongue. "'And to think they've brought me out in this heat!' This document is satisfactory. I hereby pronounce the defendant not guilty on all charges. He picked up a comically undersized hammer from his desk and brought it down with a bang. For a moment, Sam Yuen stared at the magistrate in shocked silence. Then, in a single fluid motion, he picked up the table at which he had been sitting and threw it at Yeohing's head. Yoheng was ready. As the table came flying through the air, he dropped to one knee and ducked beneath it. Yat Ho, who was standing behind him, did the same. But the Guila policemen were not quick enough. The fat one caught one corner of the table with his big soft belly. The thin one caught another with his face. Sam Yuan was on Yoheng in an instant. Blows seemed to fall from everywhere at once, striking at Yo-Hing's head and body, kicking at his knees, and snatching at the big man's arms whenever he struck back. Yo-Hing was a formidable man, huge and strong. He was deceptively light on his feet, but Sam Yuan's assault was so savage that he was forced to give ground. The two of them traced a slow, semicircular path Across the courtroom floor. Watching them, Yutho suddenly recalled something A ah Choi had once told her about Buddhist monks who practiced the art of using life force, qi, as a weapon. There was something unnatural in the way that Sam Yuan moved, as though an unseen force was moving through him like a fire through dry brush. Yutho recalled when he had hit her. Lifting her bodily from the ground and slamming her against the wall. She was a little surprised that Yoheng had lasted this long. Sam Yuan swung his left arm in a broad, sweeping arc towards Yoheng's head. With a roar of triumph, the big man reached up to catch his assailant's wrist, but his hand closed on thin air. At the same moment, Sam Yuan's right foot slammed the side of Yoheng's knee. With a crash, Yoheng tumbled to the floor, and Sam Yuan leapt on him, his two arms darting out like striking snakes towards Yoheng's neck. Somehow, Yoheng managed to get a forearm between Sam Yuan and his throat, and the two of them grappled, their feet skidding on the smooth courthouse floor. Boss? said Hing Sing. Sam Yuan seemed not to hear him. He was producing a rasping growl that sounded like a wild animal. Um, boss? Hing Sing hesitated. Then he shut his eyes, reared up to his full considerable height, and shouted, Hey, boss! Both Sam Yuen and Yo Hing stopped fighting and looked at him. Hing Sing pointed silently towards the two Gwala policemen who had drawn their six guns and seemed to be trying to figure out who to shoot. Blood dripped from the yellow one's nose, which the flying table had crushed out of shape. Sam Yuan looked at them. Then he looked back at Yo-Hing. This isn't over, he hissed. Then he released his grip and stood up, brushing the dust off his rumpled Mandarin jacket. Gentlemen, he said, Addressing the policeman, Please excuse our little disagreement. Harris, I will see to your medical treatment and make sure that you are adequately compensated for your injury. Builderain, I trust that you are unhurt? Heng Sing hurried to translate. I don't know, said the fat policeman. He palpated his belly. I think you might have given me some indigestion. Yo Hing, who was standing between Sam Yuen and Liang, burst out laughing. Hing Sing murmured his translation to Sam Yuen, and Yat Ho glanced up at the magistrate. His wig had fallen slightly to one side, and he was staring down at Sam Yuen with a scandalized expression. Fine, Sam Yuen snapped. I'll expect both of you at the Ninyan store within an hour. You won't get a penny until I have it in writing that you decline to press charges. He turned on his heel and marched out of the courtroom. Hing Seng and Phoenix followed him out with their backs bent and their heads down like dogs that had been beaten and who expected to be beaten again. Yo Hing walked over to his table, limping slightly, but otherwise showing no sign of the brutal assault he had just endured. The magistrate cleared his throat and said something that made Yo-Hing laugh. Yat-Ho looked questioningly at Li Yong, and he assumed the role of translator as Yo-Hing replied, Thank you, Your Honor. I do what I can, and trust in the American passion for truth to do the rest. How lucky we are to live in this land where all roguery must bend to the imperatives ...of blind justice. The magistrate smiled indulgently. Then he banged his desk again with his tiny hammer. Release the prisoner, he commanded. The fat policeman shambled over and removed the shackles from Yetho’s wrists. She ran towards Li who vaulted out of the witness box and caught her in his arms. They were both laughing with relief. A few of the Gwala in the room shifted uncomfortably at this heathenish display of emotion, but Yutho and Leong didn't notice or care. They didn't even notice Yo Hing approaching until he was standing over them with his hands on his hips. "'Once again, I've chosen a bad time to interrupt,' he said. "'But I think we should probably get going. After all, you two have a ship to catch.' he grinned. Yato and Leong looked at each other. Then, hand in hand, they followed Hing through the open courtroom door, down a broad stone stairwell, and out into the brilliant sunshine.
0: If you enjoyed the show and want to hear more, tell us in a review, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts, and reach out with thoughts and questions on Instagram and Facebook at Blood on Gold Mountain. The final episode, Blood on Gold Mountain, will be released on Wednesday, July 14th. Blood on Gold Mountain is brought to you by the Holmes Performing Arts Fund of the Claremont Colleges, the Pacific Basin Institute of Pomona College, the Public Events Office at Scripps College, the Scripps College Music Department, the Entrepreneurial Musicianship Department at the New England Conservatory, and our Patreon patrons. It is written and produced by Micah Huang, narrated by Hao Huang, and hosted by Emma guys, featuring original music by Micah Huang and the Flower Pistols. A special thanks to Chi Wei Lo, Jonah Huang, and Muchi Lee for their musical contributions, Kusuma Tre Saputro for the amazing artwork, Sheila Colliser for her critical PR guidance, Shayna Krizan for her Instagram wizardry, Rochelle Huang for her editing prowess, and Ivo Terra from Simpler Media Productions for his immense expertise and support. Thanks for listening and see you next time.